Well, amen. Thank you, worship team, so much. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to be with you this morning to get to open God's Word together with you. Uh, as Bill mentioned, we have uh, been happy members of this church now, going on nine years. And uh, my wife and Karen and our five children, we love Lenexa Baptist Church. Uh, we love Pastor Chad, and we even love Pastor Bill. How about that, huh? <laughs> we are a little bit disoriented this morning, my wife and I. Our, our, of our five children, our youngest four, we sent to Canicut Camp for two weeks yesterday. My oldest daughter, Emery, is here with us. And uh, when the door closed yesterday, my daughter, my wife, broke out spontaneously in that praise song, We've Waited for This Day. And uh, our house is oddly quiet, and uh, here this morning we oddly are not needing a full row, but just a couple of seats together to worship. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, we'll be looking together in verse, beginning in verse 11. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And as you're turning, I do want to express a word of welcome and greeting to those joining us online, uh, those at Reach Church DeSoto, and those just down the hall here at the venue service. Delight to have each one of you joining us this morning also. Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, we'll be looking together beginning in verse 11, and we're thinking this morning about a certain hope in an uncertain hour. A certain hope in an uncertain hour. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We are looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let us pray. Father, we bow this morning in worship and we come to you. We have sung great songs of your name. We have read your word. We have prayed together. We've been encouraged through baptism and through mission update. And here we are now desiring to hear you from you, from your word. Father, we believe in the power of scripture. We believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I pray we would experience that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're thinking this morning about a certain hope in an uncertain hour. And humanly speaking, we acknowledge that hope is a powerful psychological factor. Webster Dictionary defines hope as, a, as an expectation or a, a desire or for one to, to cherish something potential. And humanly speaking, we throw this word around a lot and this concept around a lot. And humanly speaking, it most always has at least a tinge of contingency to it, a, a, a tinge of impossibility to it. We use the word hope like we, we, we hope our children will turn out okay. Or we, we hope the doctor will call with good news. Or we hope we'll get that promotion at work. And so as we use that in common conversation, it always tends to have at least a, a portion of contingency associated with it. Nonetheless, hope is a powerful psychological factor. 
In his award-winning book, the Jewish author Viktor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, wrote about this kind of hope. And Frankl, you might recall, was a, a, a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. And day after day, week after week, month after month, indeed year after year, he endured that agony, that, that horror of being, being, being in deprivation and seeing death with each passing day. But Frankl observed, he noted that there was something different in those who, who, who persist and persevered and lived as opposed to so many who died in the context of these concentration camps. He observed this. The loss of hope can have a deadly effect on a man. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal, some hope. Frankl was right, I think. As humans, we long for hope. We need hope. We must have hope. And look, let's be candid this morning as brothers and sisters seeking to follow Christ in the year 2021. As believers, uh, there is much that we see on the horizon in the world around us and internationally that can shake our hope. We see a culture in decline. We see national chaos. We so often see churches in decline, economic uncertainty, a persistent pandemic, and so much more can rob our sense of hope. But this morning, in this passage, we see, especially in verse 13, this presentation of hope, here referred to as the the blessed hope, and we see a contrast this morning between Christian hope and the hope this world has to offer. For those who are in Christ, our hope is confident, it's certain, it is guaranteed not to ebb and flow. It doesn't come and go because if we are in Christ, we are secure in him. In fact, for the Christian throughout scripture, we see different types of hope that we have confidence in. For Christians, we have hope of eternal life. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, the author tells us the hope of eternal life is an anchor for our soul and is both sure and steadfast. If you are in Christ, you are just as certain for heaven as though you'd already been there 10,000 years. But for believers, we also can have hope through our present suffering. Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of this in the groaning of our inner man, and we can have confidence and hope even through suffering in this present life if we are in Christ. But brothers and sisters, there's a greater hope still, a hope that transcends all other hope for us as we live in this present life, and that is what we see this morning in these verses. It is a second coming hope. The the firm expectation, the clear scriptural assertion that Jesus is coming back. And that as believers in Christ, as those who are seeking to be faithful, regardless of what our circumstances are this morning, physically, medically, financially, or any other category of life, regardless of those circumstances, we can march forward with confidence because Jesus shall return for his people. 
This book, this book of Titus, recall what's going on here. Paul is writing, and Titus, along with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, are, are what we refer to as the pastoral epistles, because Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, Timothy in 2 Timothy, and Titus here in the book of Titus, explaining how to do church, unpacking how the church is to be governed, how it is to be led, how is it to be served, and what life in the local church is to look like in the congregation. Here in chapter 2, he's speaking to about how older women should pour into younger women and invest in younger women. And then he comes towards the end of this chapter, and we see this brief divine digression into how we are to live in light of Jesus' return and how, as we do, we can have hope. Now, it is important that we remember here that this second coming hope is essential for a healthy church and for a healthy Christian. Because as we live with Christ's return set before us, and there is an, indeed an expectation in our life and an expectation in our church that Jesus will come back that frames for us a host of other considerations and decisions we make with our resources and our times and our energies and our commitments. So this morning, we're going to walk through these verses together, and we're going to really try to wring out of them all they have to say for us about this hope that we have in Christ. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler on the front end. It's this. When we get presented with the second coming of Christ in these verses, and as Pastor Chad has been unpacking for us through the book of Revelation, this is what we must always remember. These passages are not given by God to feed our speculation. They are given by God to fuel our sanctification. They are given by God to us not to feed our speculation, but to fuel our sanctification. Now look at me in verse 11 and see with me first. The foundation of a Christian's hope. The foundations, the foundation of a Christian's hope. Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This is the foundation of the Christian's hope. Now, now verse 11 prompts three questions, doesn't it? The first question is, what is the grace of God? The grace of God is God's unmerited favor on sinners. The grace of God is God's generous, beneficent act to where he gives us that which we don't deserve, forgiveness of sins, peace in this life, and a future with him for all eternity. That is the grace of God. And let me remind us this morning that, that we need to remember that that indeed is grace. We are not entitled to God's favor. We, we, are, we cannot presume Upon his goodness. No. We avail ourselves to God's favor, to his grace, through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and we acknowledge that we live in an age of entitlement, do we not? And that can seep into the church, and we can begin to think that like God owes it to us to forgive us. God's entitled to forgive us. God's entitled to accept us for just as we are and whatever we do. No. The grace of God comes to us, yes, but it comes to us as we walk through the doorway of repentance and faith. That's how we enter the room of God's grace. 
What is the grace of God? It is God's unmerited favor given to us. When did it appear? It runs throughout Scripture, but it appears most radiantly when Jesus comes, born of the Virgin Mary, living a sinless life, and dying on the cross. Paul says the grace of God has appeared. Jesus came. The theme of grace is seen early in Scripture, all the way back to the book of Genesis, where we see these sacrifices being given to, as, as pictures of God's, of the coming sacrifice of Jesus and reminders of the grace of God and atonement for sin. Yes, that theme runs throughout Scripture, but it shows up most radiantly through the Lord Jesus Christ, His incarnation. Of that event, the German theologian Eric Sauer writes, of all times, it is the turning point. Of all love, it is the highest point. Of all worship, it is the central point. Of all salvation, it is the starting point. The grace of God appeared through Christ, and notice the end of verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. Here's a reference to all mankind. And it is a reminder that Jesus came and his sacrifice on the tree was sufficient for any person and all people who believe in Christ. He paid the penalty for our sins and his death is sufficient for anyone and everyone to believe and access his redemptive work. In a very real sense, brothers and sisters, God desires for all people to be saved. And this morning, you may have come into this room or kind of browsing online or, act, or viewing from a distance what's going on here, and you're, you're wondering, is the grace of God, can it reach me? And I say to you an emphatic yes. That Jesus Christ died for sinners, and there's a particular type of sinner he really enjoys saving, and it is a sinner just like you. That is the grace of God. And so the foundation, the foundation of our hope is the gospel of Christ, the grace of God that we have received through the gospel. And so we stand confident. We stand confident in him. Now notice where our passage goes here. Notice verse 12 and 13. And here we see now, secondly, the fruit of Christian and notice what's taking place in these verses. Paul is clearly building off this grace of God that's appeared through Christ, bringing salvation. And notice verse 12. He says it, it tells us to do something. Notice that word in verse 12. It instructs us. The grace of God is instructing us to deny ourselves of ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live, to, to do something, to pursue something sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age. So think of it this way in verse 12. Paul is showing us what this hope in Christ produces, what it causes, how it evidences ourselves. And the answer is this, that if we really have that hope within us and we have a, an eye towards the return of Christ, the fulfillment of that hope, in the meantime, we are to live expectant, prepared lives with Jesus's return always in mind. We do this in, in life, don't we? I mean, that's kind of how we live, right? I mean, if, if, if this evening you're gonna have a friend over for, to your home for dinner or cookout, you make certain preparations expecting to receive him, right? Expecting to host them, right? We get ourselves ready when we're going to see someone. 
I grew up as a, a kid in Mobile, Alabama, down the Gulf Coast, and, and the house I grew up in, my, my parents built when they were, they were newlyweds. They got married in the 60s and built a house there in the uh, kind of mid to late 60s, and as a kid, I was born in the late 70s, grew up in the 80s in this home, and it was just a standard little you know, middle-class home, about 2,000 square feet, and I and my older brothers lived there. Well, well the, the, the design that was common then in kind of the late 60s was, even if the house was, was not a big house, you still had like a, a formal dining room in a formal living room, and then you had like a little, you know, a different family room that you'd live in. But, but for us, we grew up with this formal dining room that was adjacent to the kitchen and this formal living room. And so this dining room, this formal dining room was this room that like we never, ever, ever used. But on special occasion, you know, we, we, would, we, would, we would perhaps use that dining room for, you know, Easter Sunday meal or if grandmother came over, we'd eat around the dining room table because it seated a couple more folks. And it was this room that we never used. And then we had this living room that we actually used even less. And the living room was like perfect. It was the furniture that, you know, evidently nice furniture can't be used. So it was this furniture in there we couldn't use. And as a kid, I never played in that room. I never ran through that room, never went in that room. It, it, would, it would prompt corporal punishment, if not capital punishment. And so it was this room that was always ready. And if, you know, Billy Graham or Ronald Reagan came by, we were going to be ready to receive him. But short of those two figures, the room was never accessed. We were ready for someone to come. Closer to home, my wife's here, and we joke about it when, when my folks or her folks come to Kansas City to visit. We're, we're getting our house ready with five kids, and we're, you know, we're, we're getting things in order. And we clean underneath the refrigerator in case they check there, and underneath the couches in case they check there to inspect our home. We're, we're ready for folks to come. It's a cute way of pointing to a profound spiritual reality in these verses here. Paul is saying, an awareness of the return of Jesus ought to prompt certain realities in your life. Notice what they are. Notice what he says here. It instructs us to deny or to forsake ungodliness. Ungodliness is referring, refers to worldly desires. He's saying the the coming of Christ is teaching us something. It's training us to live a certain way. And it's training us to deny ourselves of ungodly activities. This ungodliness is a big category that refers to things that lack a true reverence and devotion to God. And then close to that is worldly desires. And brothers and sisters, we need to be alert to the fact that we live in an ungodly age. We need to be alert to the fact that most oftentimes our children are going to ungodly schools. Our friends often, unfortunately, are ungodly people. The culture is an ungodly culture. And so the cozy days where the church resembled the state and the state resembled the church earlier in the 20th century, those days are gone. And so we are, whether we realize it or not, fish swimming in oceans of ungodliness, impacting our entertainment impacting our relationships, impacting our workplaces, impacting virtually every touch point in our lives. And Paul is saying, if we're living in light of Christ's return, if we're aware of that blessed hope of seeing him, it makes us alert to the negative influences and sinful impulses in our life. Worldly desires, yes, that sense of our fallen nature wanting certain things that we should be denying ourselves of. Wait a minute, pastor. 
I thought when you became a believer, Christ changes you. He does emphatically. And there's a war in the inner man. And there are certain days when the flesh prevails over the spirit and other days when the spirit prevails over the flesh. And we pray and strive for the, the latter to be more common than the former. There's this inner struggle. And Paul is saying that we, as a part of that struggle, we're intentional. We're intentional to deny ourselves of those worldly desires. Really what he's describing here is the doctrine of progressive sanctification. What is that? It simply means that, that when you come to know Christ and you're made right with God, right? You're justified. God sees you as though you've never sinned. He sees you in Christ. You're a new creation. And then he proceeds to make you like Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and through the power of Scripture and the fellowship of the saints of God, and, and you grow into increased Christ likeness, and no perfection doesn't happen, but, but we do expect to see a little progress along the way. Progressive sanctification. And Paul is saying here that an awareness of Christ's soon return should drive us down the road of sanctification. Notice what he says we should do in verse 12. We should live sensibly. What does it mean to live sensibly? It means being alert to what God is doing. Being alert to what God is doing. A, a sober awareness of our times. Think a spiritual mindedness. You're, you're spiritually aware. You're alert to who in your, in your relationship circles needs to know Christ. Who you need to pray for. Where God is working that you can participate. We're to pursue that. And righteousness refers to a, a, a purity. A, a manner of life that conforms to scripture. And a godliness refers to a growing relationship with God himself. And so again, we see the point that in these passages, like Revelation and Titus 2 here, God gives us these glimpses of the future of Christ's coming reign, of Christ coming for his church. He gives it not to feed our speculation, but to fuel our sanctification. Well, notice where this hope goes in verse 13 and 14. And we see thirdly, the fulfillment of Christian hope. So stay with me here again. We see in these verses the foundation of hope, all that we have through Christ. We are secure in him. We see the fruit of this hope of Christ's coming and how it propels us and compels us to live for Christ and live like Christ. And then we see thirdly now where Paul builds his argument to the fulfillment of Christian hope. Notice what he says in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope. Those three words, not just the hope, the blessed hope. The picture of looking is one of constant expectation. Indeed, it's, it's a present participle. What does that mean? It simply means there's ongoing action. It's not that I once anticipated Christ's return or one day I'll, I'll be more aware of Christ's return. But no, for the believers, the posture is this constant awareness of someone coming to visit. This constant expectation, this ongoing anticipation, this eager expectation that Jesus is coming. You know what? As I preach and get to serve the church and the Southern Baptist Convention and beyond, I'm around congregations all the time, the people of God all the time. I'll tell you, I don't hear a lot of preaching on the second coming of Christ these days. 
I don't. I'll tell you what is more, as I, as I interact with believers, there's times it, it, it feels like, like Christians would be disappointed if Christ came back because you know, that would interfere with their plans for retirement. Uh, there's churches where it feels like th- th- they would be disappointed if Christ came back because it would preempt them from, from fulfilling their five-year strategic master plan. Everything we do in life, brothers and sisters, as individuals and as churches, we should do so with a humble acknowledgement that Christ can upin all of that today. And we want him to. But we confess that in the West and in the places like Lenexa, Kansas, in the Midwest, that there's a certain comfort we most of us enjoy and a, a certain even spiritual laziness that can set in and a certain complacency that can set in because our needs are being met and we enjoy a certain standard of living that, that's uncommon to the rest of the world. And so it's easy to kind of forget about the fact that we want Jesus to return. But do you realize how atypical we are? For the vast expanse of the history of the church, the past 2,000 years, Christians have tended to be the beleaguered ones, the persecuted ones, the ostracized ones, the marginalized ones. And right now, as we gather with relative comfort in this room today, right now, they're believers under arrest in places like communist China after their house churches have been raided. Places like North Korea, they live in fear and trembling of what the state will do. Places right now, churches in Africa, for instance, that are living in fear of Muslim invaders coming and upending their town and their village and their church. Latin America, oppressive government leaders scattering the church. If you're one of those settings, brothers and sisters, you don't have to talk yourself up into wanting Jesus to return. You want him to return. I say this not to scold us this morning or feel bad about where we are. No, God and his providence has placed us here and called us to minister and serve here. And so we don't feel badly about that, no. But we ought to be alert through this season. And in this place, God has us. Brothers and sisters, today could be the day. Paul says things like this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and following, he says, For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, that's us, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, referring to those who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. One preacher said, that's my church, because they're all dead in Christ. (laughs) Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. There should be an expectancy there within us that fuels us to pursue Christ and to be active in his ministry. It's this longing that we are to have, this expectant longing. One of my favorite preachers and and friends is a man named Jerry Vines. Many of you know he's now retired in his 80s, but for many years he was a leading pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention. He preached a sermon similar to what I'm preaching today and told the story of of a home in Georgia for children who are mentally disabled. 
and a sermon was preached there to those children once about the second coming of Christ in their own simplistic way. Many of these kids went and pressed their faces against the windows, looking out the windows for Jesus to come. And as they did, you could see slobber running down the windows as they leaned against the window, pressing in, wanting to get a glimpse of our coming Lord. There's a sweetness to that story that rebukes us, doesn't it? A longing we should have. But not just an expectant longing, an affectionate longing. Notice in verse 14, Paul ties this expectation of Christ's return to what he has done for us. We want to see Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Brothers and sisters, there are saints of old I hope to see in heaven. There are loved ones I desire to see in heaven. But all of that will be dramatically eclipsed by the one who died for us. Jesus, that's who we long to see. And this is a a longing to worship him, to thank him, to rejoice with him in person. For he has redeemed us from every lawless deed. And notice, is purifying for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what he's doing in our lives right now. He will come for us with affection. We will see him. And until now and then, he's purifying for us, in us, a people for his own glory. End time reflections aren't to feed our speculation. They are to fuel our sanctification. Martin Luther, the great reformer, famously observed, he said, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day, referring to when Jesus comes back. And would to God that we would have in our hearts a similar sense of gospel urgency. And so let me ask you this morning and pull this together with three final words of application that come in questions. And it is this. With this certain hope, the confidence we have in Christ And the awareness that his return is soon. If you believe that Jesus is coming back real soon. Three questions. How should you reprioritize your life? The summer is rapidly coming to a close. A new season of ministry here will be underway for the fall. All of us have been out of schedule and traveling and this and that. And it's the natural time to look towards this coming ministry year. This fall season that starts with school and all the rest. And ask ourselves... With Jesus coming back, how should I reprioritize? Second question, with Jesus coming back soon, what should you be denying and pursuing? Like Paul said in verse 12, his coming is instructing us to deny ourselves of ungodliness and worldly desires and to pursue sensibility, spiritually speaking, righteousness and godliness in this present age. For you, what does that mean, sir? What habit for once and all do you need to kick? What relationship for once and all do you need to end? What form of entertainment for once and all you need to leave behind? How should you reprioritize? What should you deny and pursue? And then thirdly, and it's got to get there, right? Who, who should you be reaching? There's many of us who know many people that need the Lord. Kids, siblings, parents, friends, neighbors, coworkers. And all the rest. But I found over the years, as we pray for many and hope for many, it's good at times to pray for one and reach out to one with specificity. 
Who is that person in your life today, in light of Jesus' coming soon, that you need to focus in on right now for the gospel? Who is that person? Who is that person? I'll tell you who. It's the name that comes to mind in moments like this. There are two days on Luther's calendar today and that day. May there be two days ultimately on ours as well. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And Father, we rejoice in your word, the promises that we have. We believe it's true. And so, Father, now I pray that even as we have reflected on your word, those in the room and beyond, that in this moment of decision, that your spirit would work. And Father, some people here today, no doubt, who need to, by your grace, make some spiritual decision to give their life to you, understanding that your son is coming soon and they dare not be found not in him. To commit themselves to a church like this as a step of reprioritization, to be right and faithful in light of Christ's return. Perhaps some other spiritual decisions. So, Father, I pray as we turn to this time of response that your spirit will work in our hearts. Help us to respond faithfully and obediently now in this very moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing to the Lord. Pastor Bill is going to lead us in this song of worship. So let's pray together. Let's sing and worship together. And let's respond this very moment. If God has touched your heart, lead us, Pastor Bill.